Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 7th. Westoff, right off the bat, I need the emergency sirens. Give me the tornado siren. Give me the lion's roar. Give me that fire truck in the background because we had ourselves a day at day seven of the U.S. Open. And of course, the tennis itself was spectacular, and we will talk about that. But of course, the biggest storyline coming out of Sunday's matches, Novak Djokovic eliminated from the event, not because of his performance on the court, but because of his actions on it. He, in frustration, going down a break, 6-5 in the first sets, hits a ball at the back fence. That ball strikes a line judge in the throat. Seemed like a pretty clear-cut decision. He gets defaulted from the match. Pablo Carreno boosts him moving on. And obviously, that was something none of us saw coming. So, of course, to talk about that incident, to recap the rest of Day 7's fantastic matches. And there really was some fantastic tennis played on Day 7. It's so unfortunate that this, of course, will be the storyline hovering above all else. But joining me to recap all that action, as he always does here during this U.S. Open, you, of course, know him as our crack rackets do anything a former denison men's tennis great the only undefeated high school tennis coach in missouri history a man i affectionately refer to as james foster mcdonald jamie it's about 12 hours later i i woke up today i started making the outline for this podcast and then i thought to myself oh yeah we got to talk about the Djokovic stuff at the top how are you feeling 12 hours later yeah i mean first and foremost right it's, it's just crazy right i mean it, this just completely changes the draw. And you've heard it, even the players have even spoken out or made comments here and there about what it has done to the draw, which really just tells you how big of a favorite and how scary Djokovic was to the rest of the field. But now that he's out, it's a completely different tournament. So you're right on the storylines. Kind of a bummer that this incident cast a shadow over the rest of the day because we did see some phenomenal tennis. But here we are now, obviously have to address it because of the implications it has on the top half of the men's draw. And now this thing is wide open. Yeah, and again, just some context. Again, I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot about that because it was just such an immediate reaction, so so much shock and awe in that moment. And then I'm sort of still processing what happened. And yeah, I mean, just a little insight for you Crack Rackets fans. We recorded, I think, three pieces of content in the morning, Jamie, before Djokovic's match. And, you know, uh, one of them was a men's draw preview heading into week two. And there's some very Djokovic-centric content at the end we're talking about. Look at his level. He just annihilated Struff. This is definitely his event to lose. And guess what? He lost it. 
Uh, and so obviously that's something we are going to talk about today. But yeah, I mean, I had recorded a podcast with Maddie Stack, same deal, and there was so much Djokovic-centric podcast. Then, of course, we had to go on, give our emergency podcast and our emergency reaction to this. And of course, for all of you listeners out there who want to check that out, see Jamie and I, you can honestly see the shock in our faces as we're talking about it. If you go and check out the video on YouTube, uh, where we, again, give our initial reaction, talk about some of the things we're going to talk about now. And, you know, again, we'll get to the, uh, I'm going to keep the sponsors short today because we got big storylines to talk about. And then obviously some tennis, go to MidwestSports.com, use the promo code CR15, go to Aerobar.com, use the promo code Cracked15. Of course, we are so grateful for their continued support. It allows us to do things like at a 4 p.m. on a Sunday, I call Jamie and I say, hey, we got to do this instant reaction. He's like, yep, of course. And we're able to do that because of the support we get from them. The least you can do is go support them as well. So Midwest Sports, Aerobar. But yeah, let's get right into this with this Novak Djokovic topic, Jamie. And again, Again, just a recap for the listeners of how that match was playing out. It was 5-all, love 30, Novak Djokovic serving in the first set. He took a tumble. He fell on his shoulder. You could tell it was painful. He took an injury timeout, got it worked on. And, you know, earlier in the match, he had already expressed frustration by hitting a ball, I think, at the side fence and just, you know, clearly just... Things were not working great for Djokovic in that first set. This is not to justify it. This is just to give context, by the way. Uh, then he comes out of that injury timeout. Love 40, gets broken 4-6-5, PCB about to serve for the set. Rather than just drop the balls down, go to the changeover, rather than just hit the ball back, you know, quite, you know, softly at the back fence, in frustration, as tennis players have so often done, Novak Djokovic hits a ball hard at the back fence. Now, what made this circumstance so, uh, you know, extraordinary is that that ball then struck a line judge directly in the throat. That line judge immediately went down. You can see on Novak Djokovic's face, if you watch the video, which again, you can see on our YouTube video where we break this down, you can see him process in the moment, I am in trouble. And again, Jamie, I'll get to the rule in a second, but just your immediate reaction, I know you've, you didn't get the chance to see it live, but you've seen the replay now. I, if you watch the video to me, there's no inclination other than this is a defaultable offense. Yeah, and as you mentioned, we spoke about this, at, not at too much length, but at length um, in our YouTube video. And look, it is what it is at this point, right? Um, he did something that violated the rules and got defaulted for it. Now, you, you, people start to have the conversation of intent or, hey, if he just rockets a ball that's like three feet higher, this isn't even an issue. And he maybe gets a violation for ball abuse, right? But um, listen, that's not what happened. He he hit the ball. Uh, it hit a lines person. And so, you know, regardless of all this other conversation, you know, regardless of the fact that, you know, some people are saying, well, why are there even, you know, lines people out there right now there aren't on the rest of the courts doesn't matter at this point because he hit the person the rules are what the rules are and you know he has to be defaulted yeah and look we uh when we posted the video you and i both got feedback from different people saying well you know the rule we cited in that video was incorrect he wasn't defaulted for unsportsmanlike conduct he was defaulted for ball abuse here would be my counter to that argument i'm going to read the rule one more time because this was the enforcement and again he get he hits the line judge immediately there's a gathering of you know first obviously first and foremost to see if the line judge is okay and of course that is something all of us want is a speedy and safe recovery for this 
lines person. But, you know, the rule was, if someone said, is it ball abuse? Is it unsportsmanlike conduct? Here's the case for unsportsmanlike conduct. Players shall at all times conduct themselves in a sportsmanlike manner and give due regard to the authority of officials and the rights of opponents, spectators, and others. But, you know, it talks about the violation and it says, if such violation occurs during a match, the player shall be penalized in accordance with the point penalty schedule. In circumstances that are flagrant and particularly injurious to the success of a tournament or are singularly egregious, a single violation of this section shall also constitute the major offense of aggravated behavior and shall be subject to the additional penalties here and after set forth. I think we can both agree, Jamie, that in this moment, this circumstance was flagrant, it was particularly injurious, and it was singularly egregious. This was aggregated behavior. This was unsportsmanlike conduct. And yes, if that ball hits the back fence, there's no denying. He's still in the match. We're not talking about this today. But it didn't. And I don't care about the intent. Intent is not written in the rule. And that's a separate discussion. This you know, checks off all three of those marks as an aggregated behavior. I just, I don't know how, given the interpretation of the rules and given other things we've seen, and we can get into that in a second, but this is pretty clear cut to me. Yeah. And look, if you, if you listen to the USTA statement, right, you know, it, it tells you it's exactly referencing the ITF Grand Slam rulebook following, quote, his actions of intentionally hitting a ball dangerously or recklessly within the court with negligent disregard of the consequences. So, you know, they're very clear on what they're doing and why they're defaulting him. Um, and again, I've said it, I've said it earlier already. It is what it is at this point, right? Mm-hmm. He hit the lines person and he's out of this tournament. So at this point, it's like, to me, the most important discussion is not how it happened because we've seen this happen. We've seen lesser things get defaults. He was clearly angered in this incident. And regardless of intent, as you mentioned, it's not written in the rules. And, you know, we don't need to get into a long discussion about whether it should be or not. But at this point, it isn't, and what he did was wrong, so he's out of the tournament. Yeah, and it's a separate discussion. Should the chairperson be able to judge intent? Should the chairperson realize there, A, you know, he was not trying to hit the line judge, and should the chairperson have some discretion? Yeah, they should. The same way an, a line umpire, roaming umpire, has discretion at a local event, and when a local umpire sees something happen, they can say, well, I was right here. I saw this happen. I can tell you what the intent of this action was. Although anytime you're trying to speculate on intent, you get into trouble. At the same time, There's no room in tennis for this. Like, there's just not. This is a flagrant offense, and even if it was unintentional, just don't f***ing do it. Just don't. And then there's no problem, right? It's like, how about instead you just skyrocket that at the stadium, right? You, you've you mentioned that a bunch of times, Jamie. If he just does that, if he just, you know, sends it flying, then we're not having this conversation. So it's just why even put yourself in that scenario? And, you know, there were videos popping up on YouTube. I think it was a French Open where he tossed his racket once and he was like inches away from hitting a player. And there was this press thing afterwards where he was asked about that. And he was, you know, giving grief to the reporters for even asking. And it's like, no, dude dude, you brought this on yourself. Like, it's entirely, and you know, in the USTA statement you referenced, there was Djokovic will lose all ranking points earned at the US Open and will be fined the prize money in addition to any, you know, other fines. And, you know, is that too harsh when you talk about the intent to not have rankings points to be fined all of the prize money, not just the usual fines you would get for an egregious violation? I mean, I don't know about that because, again, that's where intent, you, when you're talking about the punishment, the immediate punishment was given. He's kicked out of the event, and I promise you that means more to him than anything else you can do. But that's where, you know, I, I, of course Novak Djokovic is going to 
accept any fine he's given. He didn't face the press, but he accepted that fine. But, you know, I just, I, it's, this was the correct decision. This is a random question, and maybe you don't even know the answer. Always curious in a situation like this, where does that prize money go? Uh, right back to the ATP, I'm sure. And yeah, I'm sure to good. some sort of charity or something when there's yeah. some, I, I would hope, I would hope, I would hope. Yeah, Maybe, I was just curious, yeah. and in such a situation like this, I mean, obviously the ranking points, and you mentioned it, 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 obviously this is not about the money, so that was just a completely random thought, because Djokovic knows the opportunity that this was, um, and, and it wasn't about, you know, reaching the semis to get 800k, right? It was about, you know, adding another tally to the Grand Slam title to close the gap, um, and to get in a position where he can beat out Rafa um, and Roger in that all-time count, so... With that being said, though, uh, he is out of the tournament, and it is our boy Pablo Carreño Busta who's uh, into the quarters instead. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, if for those curious, uh, obviously Novak Djokovic immediately comes out and posts a statement on Instagram. The whole situation has left me really sad and empty. You know, he talked about, I checked on the line judge, uh, on the lines person the tournament told me, thank God she's feeling okay. I'm extremely uh, sorry to have caused her so much stress. And, you know, again, he goes on to apologize, goes on to talk about how he's going to get back better, stronger from this. Uh, obviously, it's a mortifying incident. It's a blemish, a black mark on, uh, you know, for Novak Djokovic in a summer full of tumultuous decisions. I mean, this is just just another one for him, and you start to think about the equivalent Shapovalov at Davis Cup when he popped the line judge in the face. That was still mortifying to this day. Now, Bandian at Queens Club when he was smacking the little platform that the chairperson sits on, and that chairperson got hurt by the shrapnel or whatever. Tim Hedman, Wimbledon, McEnroe, Australian Open. I don't really remember those, but it's happened before, but obviously it's exceptionally rare. But yeah, Jamie, to your point, uh, you know, that's one part of the equation. The other part that we have to talk about, the tennis aspect. This is the first Grand Slam since 2004 on the men's side that won't feature Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. It's the first time since the uh, 2014 U.S. Open that we're going to have a brand new men's singles Grand Slam champion. I don't even know if I'm ready to process that part of this, Jamie, but oh my God. Yeah, listen, we're in a really weird spot right now, and I think it is exciting, right? Um, In a lot of ways, this is sort of what has been missing from the men's game, and, and that's not necessarily a positive thing. Um, but the fact of there's just so much mystery now, right? I mean, there are legitimately so many people who could take this title where before when Djokovic was even was in the draw, you know, even without Roger and Rafa, you know, I don't want to say it seemed decided, but there was a clear favorite and that was for sure intimidating to the rest of the field and expected um, from all of the spectators. Now you have so many different challengers who could legitimately make a run at this thing and how many people have to be kicking themselves now thinking of your Sitsipases and your Raoniches who realistically could have won this thing now um, if they didn't get knocked out earlier in the tournament so there's just so much happening at this point and the top half of this draw is going to I don't know how it's going to play out but it's going to be really really exciting. No, we've got three next-geners, 96 or later. Chorich, Shefvalov making their first slam quarterfinal appearance. Zverev, obviously, at this point now, the veteran in the top half. Papo Carreno boosted there as well. But, you know, from our friend at Luca Beck, this is the first slam without a player born in the 80s uh, since the 2001 Australian Open. I mean, that's crazy. We talk about generational shifts. That that stat epitomizes where we are at right now, and it's wide open. And, you know, I 
shameless plug here. I went on the No Challenges Remaining podcast, Ben Rothenberg, Courtney Wynn's show, uh, to talk about the next-gen success. And, you know, it almost feels like there's a poetry, Jamie, to the fact that it took this sort of extraordinary circumstances that for the, you know, I, I said this then, there's this cliche, of course, Mother Nature undefeated, right? And it seemed like Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal were going to be the exception to that. But literally, Mother Nature was like, you know what? I'm going to give a global pandemic. I'm going to injure Roger's knee. I'm not, that's not how it actually works, but Roger's going to be injured. And then this is going to happen to Djokovic. And it's going to take all of that just for one of these next-gen guys to win a slams. I just feel like there's, it's, it's a little bit funny, but there is some poetry to that. So, I guess, you know, let me play you here for a bit. My counter to that is the fact that I I think that a true changing of the guard with the next gen coming up would have been that a next gen player defeats Djokovic in the Mm -hmm. semis or finals um, and and truly gets through that challenge as opposed to having, you know, Djokovic defaulted in the first set against Pablo Carina Busta with the other two not playing, you know. So so to me, yes, there's some poetry in the sense that like, look at all this crazy stuff that's happened in culmination to, to lead up to this. But to me, it's much less powerful because, I, I don't know, I thought it would be a next-genner going through defeating Novak Djokovic and truly taking the title um, as opposed to having all of this situational, you know, crap happen and sort of the draw being left in shambles. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think two things can be true. One of my favorite things to say whenever I don't disagree with someone but want to make a different point in the argument. I think you're absolutely right. The moment that would have made the that would have been the biggest spectacle that would have felt like a true changing of the guards was last year's US Open final. Medvedev after the summer he ripped off. If he beats Nadal in five sets in that final, then it feels like the guard has shifted. That's the Sarah ceremonial moment, the match where we see the next-gen breakthrough, I agree with you, that would have been the best story. That would have been the ideal script, the way all of us wanted to see it. But that just clearly was never going to happen. Like, it's, it just wasn't. And I'm saying... Again, that I think you're absolutely right. I just also think it's kind of funny that like everyone's saying, all right, well, the next gen can't beat these t- big three. And it's like, okay, well, they don't have to here. So joke's on you. Like one of them's going to end up with a slam title anyways. I just, I don't know. that It's just, it feels for some reason, it feels fitting to me. Do you think Nadal is now very annoyed with his decision to not come play this event? If the U.S. Open called him right now and said, Rafa, we've waived all of the coronavirus procedures. You can come play out Crano uh, Busta's match. Does he say yes? And then and then take Djokovic's spot in the draw. I mean, just assuming it worked like that. Um... Yeah, if the USTA <laughs> says, hey, we want you here this weekend, what's it going to take? And he's like, that's what it takes. And does he – I mean, they're like, here's our offer. Do, does he say yes? I mean – this is very hypothetical maybe that's just a wild that's just a wild thing to do i mean i think if you're asking the question would he take djokovic's spot hypothetically sure um but with all the other situational stuff around coronavirus and the reasons he didn't come in the first place probably not no i agree with you i just i mean yeah it's it's crazy the top half of the draw is wide open on the men's side and i think with that in mind let's get into talking who we're going to see play out that top half because we saw the first half of the round of 16 played out on sunday some really outstanding matches introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power 
power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Let's start with the man who's going to match up now with Pablo Carreno Busta, Denis Shapovalov, who put together arguably the best win of his career in a 6-7, 6-3, 6-4, 6-3 win over number seven seeded David Goffin. Jamie, I want to start here with this conversation. No one is going to deny the overwhelming firepower of Denis Shapovalov. No one's going to lie. He's the two-fold athlete. He's blessed with one of those shoulders where he can just rocket balls, and he's also an incredible mover as well. The way he took it, though— to David Goffin in this match. I've never seen him play like this against such a high-level opponent. Yeah, I mean, this was really impressive. Um, you know, the first set was very tight. David Goffin just playing a good tiebreak. Shapovalov having some some bad misses at the beginning of that one and, and really just sort of went out of control. But phenomenal job of Shapovalov to really regain, um, you know, everything and make sure the momentum didn't get out of hand for David Goffin. That's the first part. Then the second part is actually the tennis, which is what you're talking about. And, and listen, Shabovalov, you know, he obviously had the edge in the serving department. Um, I think the danger came if they got into long baseline rallies, David Goffin, just so solid. Um, but Shabovalov matched that and did more. He said, you know what? I can grind for the baseline too. And when I get the right ball, I'm going to rocket this thing. You know, the inside out forehand was looking good. You could tell that Gofen was obviously trying to get into the forehand to the Shapovalov backhand um, cross court rally. And, you know, Shapovalov's backhand held up, right? I mean, obviously he got the forehand, you know, when he wanted to and really wanted to put some offense on it. He would get Gofen stretched with it. But overall, he did a great job of just being an aggressive baseliner. And coming into the net, his volleys and his hands looked great in this match. I mean, just overall, pretty much everywhere I point outside of the first set breaker, this is a really good performance from Dennis. You said it there at the top. When you think Dennis Shapovalov, you think firepower. You think overwhelming just force. And he didn't do that in this match. I'm not saying you didn't see the firepower on display, but it was the patience. And that, to me, is such a sign of growth. And you look at this match, just start with some of the easy stats. Denis Shapovalov, 52 winners against uh, 46 unforced errors for David Goffin in this match. 37 winners against 44 unforced errors. Shapovalov was patient. He waited for the right opportunity. And you're right, you know, with his backhand, I thought he did as good of a job replying cross court as he did going down the line and getting the ball into the GoFan backhand and then saying, okay, you think you can pick on my backhand? No, 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 no. I'm taking this one down the line. And I thought the shot selection on display, he played slice, he played short angle, he played drive. And then, of course, for him, that inside-in forehand is so powerful. And when he goes down the line as well, it's such a good shot. And, you know, in this match as well, high percentage tennis, 64% of his first serves go in. He's 76% on those points, 53% on his second serve points a really tidy 34 of 48 at the net and that's another thing you like about him he's not afraid to move forward and unlike a Zverev a Fritz um, you know some of these other young guys I think he and Shapovalov when they get to the net they know what they're doing. There's a plan when they're up there. And against David Goffin, you have to pressure him because he's not going to break down. He's not going to beat himself. But Shapovalov didn't press. Again, that word patient comes to mind. The shot selection was was just, it, it was about as perfect a tactical match as you could have asked for from Dennis. And then he executed those tactics really, really well. 
yeah, listen, when coaches say controlled aggression, this is exactly what they mean. Um, mm-hmm. So execution-wise, Dennis Shapovalov, really, really phenomenal. And look, this sort of performance is what shows you that this guy can go anywhere in the draw, right? Because it's not just, as you mentioned, yes, he has the firepower, and we saw it in flashes when he really went after a forehand. But this, to me, shows that not only do he have that, um, it's exactly what you mentioned, all of the control and patience that has grown into his game. So really important. This is, I think this is a really big win for, for him in, his stage, in this stage of his career. Obviously, a bit of a missed opportunity for David Goffin, but honestly, he just got outplayed. Um, yeah. So at that point, he can't feel too bad because, sure, he missed some opportunities. Sure, I'm, you know, he wants some of those break points back. But Shapovalov did a great job of serving out of trouble when he did um, have break points uh, against him. Look, David Goffin, you can walk away from this one and feel pretty okay because Shapovalov just simply outplayed you. Yeah, I mean, 5 of 16 on break points versus Gofen's 1 of 7. We mentioned the winner to unforced error ratio. I also thought David Gofen did a good job of getting Shapovalov stretched to the outer thirds of elongating points. You look at distance covered, Shapovalov at 48.8 feet per point, uh, Gofen at 45.1, and yet he's just such an explosive athlete. You get him to the outer thirds, and because he's able to do so many things, because he's literally one of those people who can hit a winner on any given part of the court, he's just, he played that good of a match. And for Shapovalov to beat Fritz, to follow that up with the win here over Gofen, to bounce back in this sort of fashion, and to not look any sort of, you know, not just physically, he looked so good in this match. There didn't look to be any sort of ailing, any sort of, you know, uh, soreness from his five-setter with Fritz, and that's so encouraging. And again, you look at it now against Pablo Carreno Busta, I'm not willing to say he's the favorite overwhelmingly, although I'm sure he's going to be the favorite by DraftKings odds, but just matchup-wise, why can't Shapovalov do exactly what he did to Gofen again to Carreno Busta? I mean, what an opportunity for Denis Shapovalov here now. Yeah, he's got to be feeling really good about this because, as you mentioned, it. There's uh, look, there's a lot of similarities there, and if he did this to, to David Gofen, you know, to answer your sort of rhetorical question there, absolutely. There's no reason he couldn't do this to Carino Busta. And I mean, honestly, Carino Busta has to be watching. I'm sure he's already seen highlights um, and film from this match and is feeling a little worried because he just watched Dennis Shapovalov do um, to David Goffin what he did, that sort of performance. He's definitely concerned, right? Because a lot of what Carino Busta does is very similar. So he's going to have to come up with some new and creative things. Maybe if I'm Carino Busta, you know, I may be trying to take... Denis Shapovalov's uh, sort of net presence out of the equation, try and push the envelope first, get to net first so that Denis Shapovalov can't do that as much. Um, I, look, I don't know. It's going to be a really, really tall task for Karina Busta. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's going to be a really fun match, and I'm sure it's one we will talk about tomorrow as well. But yeah, it was great tennis from Denis Shapovalov. There's a reason we've all been so high on his upside. We've talked about his ceiling in the same breath as we have the FAAs, the Medvedevs, the, you know, Tsitsipas's and Zverev's. And, you know, he may not be able to do it week in, week out yet, but he's clearly getting closer. And that's something that's really encouraging for all of us tennis fans. Uh, someone who has just been so good week in, week out since tennis has restarted. Shelby Rogers, who continues her outstanding form into round four as she knocks off number six seeded Petra Kvitova, 7-6, 3-6, 7-6. I mean, Jamie, 
this match, here's a number for you. Petra Kvitova, 121 total points. Shelby Rogers, 109. Petra Kvitova, 4 of 14 on break points. Shelby Rogers, 2 of 5. Petra Kvitova won 75% of her first serve points. Shelby Rogers, 65%. And yet, something about Shelby Rogers right now, Jamie, she's obviously in exceptional shape. She's obviously striking the serve, striking the forehand with confidence, but... Just her ability in the biggest moments of this match to put pressure on Kvitova, to not be afraid to go big, that's a player playing confidently. That's a player with everything clicking for them right now. Yeah, look, credit to Shelby Rogers for playing really well in the big moments. Um, ultimately, though, I mean, you sort of alluded to it by looking at all the stats and how Kvitova played in this one. And look, on a paper, she did outplay Rogers in this. And there were points in the match where she absolutely outplayed the, the American. But <laughs> listen, there were just way too many opportunities that she didn't convert, right? She had 14 break opportunities, only got through four of them. Um, and ultimately, in those biggest moments, I don't want to say she because that's unfair to Shelby Rogers and what she did on the court. But Kvitova did not play her best and her sharpest tennis in the big moments, right? Um, and you saw it in the third set tiebreak as well when it got to six all. Kvitova so frustrated that she let this one slip away. Um, but Shelby Rogers, I mean, you mentioned it. What a performance and what a run she's had since the restart to tennis. Petra Kvitova in this match, Jamie, 58 winners against 35 unforced errors. By the way, let's take out aces and double faults from that equation. 50 winners against 28 unforced errors. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, there were times in this match where you watched what Petra Kvitova was doing when she got a clean look at a forehand or hit a big serve, and it was just too easy for her. She was clicking. She played so well in this match, and yet, to your point, you could just see the frustration on her face. She was thinking, how am I in a tiebreaker with Shelby here? I should have won this match. I had so many breakpoint chances. And yeah, it's a credit to Shelby who just always came up with a big first serve, and in this match, 72% of her first serves go in. That's exactly the percentage you need when you want to pull off an upset like this. Again, she was broken four times, but she broke back twice, and she got the tie to the tiebreakers that she needed, and in those pressure moments, she played, you're absolutely right, just two better tiebreakers than Petra Kvitova, and when you're playing a slugger like Petra Kvitova, you want to take chances, right? You want to take the ball off her rack and take control. For Shelby Rogers in this match, 26 winners against 23 unforced errors, and you know, you take serves out of it, 20 winners against 21 unforced errors. That's about as steady as you need to be while maintaining your aggression to knock off, to pull, or to knock off a Kvitova, to pull off an upset like this, and so, I mean, yeah, and it, it kind of, gratifying is the wrong word, but we knew coming into this, and by the way, this could not happen to a better person, there is no, I would say there's a few people right now with 100% approval ratings in the game of tennis, Shelby Rogers is probably one of those people who just universally adored by every player, I would say Jennifer Brady is another one of them, but we talked about coming into this uh, women's singles event at the U.S. Open, the parity and how, you know, 50 women legitimately had a shot at the second week, 30 women legitimately had a shot at winning this. And, you know, for a while, it seemed like, oh, wow, Petra Kvitova, all these top seeds, they're, they're you know, Petra Martic, they're, they're all working their way to the quarterfinals. Maybe there's not going to be as much parity as we thought. Nope, that's not the case. Putin Seva, Rogers, Brady, three of the quarterfinalists on the top half. I just feel, I feel, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, I've been, I I don't want to say there's some legitimacy now, too. Validated? Yeah, validated is probably the best word. 
yeah, look, I mean, this performance is really impressive. And, you know, obviously, definitely more matches and very tough matches on big stages to get through here. But this match proves that Shelby Rogers can go in and win pretty much any match, right? Even when she's outclassed on paper, even though she's completely on the ropes with her back against the wall, she knows how to show up in the big moments. And that is huge. And, and she's going to remember that, you know, the next time she's in a nervy situation, right? She knows that she can lean on her ability to perform um, at the biggest moments. And so that that's a huge confidence booster and exactly what she needs as she continues to move through this draw. Yeah, it was a great win for Shelby now. And again, she's she's taking on Naomi Osaka. Osaka, you know, just given her leg, you know what you don't want if you have a sore hamstring? Someone who's going to crush the ball around the court. Someone who's going to really make you press and dig and need that explosive first step. And so, yeah, I mean, for Shelby Rogers, what a performance for her to move on to the quarterfinals. First quarterfinal, by the way, I believe for her at the majors. But with that in mind, let's get to the rest of the results. Let's uh, set the field for those top halves of the draw in the quarterfinals. I sort of alluded to the women's quarterfinals there, so let's run through the rest of those matches. Jennifer Brady, 6-1-6-4 over Angelique Kerber. Simply put, Jamie, she is playing outstanding tennis. Took it to Kerber. Kerber really didn't have a way to hurt her. Brady able to find so many forehands, able to hit the big serve to set up points for herself. It Osaka's on the top half of the draw, so she's not the favorite, but she is the favorite heading into her match against Putin Seva. Yeah, I mean, look, Brady looked so good here. You know, you mentioned it. Kerber really didn't have anything to hurt her with, and Kerber does the thing she always does. Obviously, you know, in this form, not quite as well as we've seen in years past, but she asks questions, and Brady answered all of them and more. Um, so the 28 seed moving through here in a really convincing 1-4 and four win looks so good and is absolutely another you know another american to be feared in this draw no absolutely and look for jennifer brady it's the fact that the big forehand just it's a weapon against any opponent she plays and she's moving so well that it's really hard to hurt her and so you know you look in her next opponent putin seva who by the way also playing exceptional tennis uh knocks off petra martich six three two six six four Putin Seva up 5-1 in the third there. Martic able to cut, get it back to 5-4. Then, in my opinion, took an unwise injury timeout. She had all of the momentum. She just kind of stopped that momentum. Got her foot tape. Putin Seva able to hold in the end for 6-4. But why Brady's the favorite is that Putin Seva just doesn't have a weapon to hurt Brady. And if you don't have a weapon right now to hurt Jennifer Brady, she's playing too well to be beaten. Yeah, look, if, if Brady continues to be in the same form that we've seen in the last few matches, yeah, I, I mean, I think you can chalk it up to another convincing win like we saw um, in the 1-4 and four result against Kerber. So really exciting to see that match. Hopefully her form stays um, in tip-top shape because you would have to see that sort of just flame out and have a loss be because of unforced errors. But at this point, hard to doubt her. Yeah, no, I mean, look, Putin Seva is moving outstandingly well, and her that movement allows her to do so many things, and she's shameless with her shot selection. She'll throw the ball 20 feet above the net. You know, she'll throw in slice, she'll throw in drop shot, short angle, drive down the line. She can do it all, and she is so quick. So I think that's going to be a really fun match, a really fun contrast of styles. But, yeah, I mean, talk about two players with confidence. I don't know if anyone right now in the women's game is more confident than Jennifer Brady. 
Although I will say this, no one in the women's game, when it's clicking, looks better than Naomi Osaka. And as I mentioned, she advances as she knocks off Annette Conteve 3-4 in, in the night match. I mean, Jamie, here's a number for you that, again, if you want the defining uh, fact of this Naomi Osaka match against Annette Conteve, it comes down to the fact that on serve in this match, Naomi Osaka, 27 of 32 on her first serve, 84%. 9 of 13 on her second serve, 69%. She lost five total points on serve, or excuse me, she lost uh, nine total points on serve, Jamie, but two of them with double faults, so she lost seven total points on serve against an Annette Conteve who was playing really good tennis. I mean, at a certain point, it's like, what are we doing here? If Osaka serves this well, she wins. Yeah, and, and I will say, you do have to give credit to Osaka for serving that well. A little bit unfortunate that Conteve wasn't able to get a little bit more traction on you know those service points, and particularly in those service games, gives her give herself a bit more of a chance. Because yes, Osaka did serve well, but you'd like to see more you know, not necessarily just returns in play, but sort of returns that put her in a neutral spot, right? And and Osaka didn't allow that, so credit to her. Um, she controlled this match off of her serve, and you know that's why she has a fairly routine win in three and four. Yeah, I thought Conteve played well, too. She fought off, like, six match points in that 4-5 return game at the end, just kept going big down the line, kept finding the line. And, you know, I'm really sold on Annette Conteve. I think she's an outstanding player. I think had she not been in the Osaka portion of the draw, she would have been just as likely to make the final as anyone else still alive. And so, you know, you can't control where you're put in the draw, but she can control being a top-10 seed moving forward, and I think that's the expectations. I think she's that good. I think she can do that many things on the court well but yeah when things work for Naomi Osaka the forehand the power she's able to produce when she's able to sit on a ball I mean 21 winners against 18 unforced errors in this match two of 10 on break points Conteve didn't have a break point chance in this one it was just too good for Naomi Osaka and so yeah she advances into the quarterfinals I think uh, probably a prohibitive favorite to advance out of that top half of the draw let's flip now to the men's side and again some fun matches although you know, nothing more exciting than PCB Djokovic or Shapovalov Gofen. Two straight set performances. Alex Virev did exactly what we wanted to see him do. 6-2-6-2-6-1 over Davidovic Fokina. No question in that match. Zverev was down, I think, an early break in set two. Got it uh-huh. right back, raced off six games. He advances to another quarterfinal where he has a rematch against Borna Choric. Choric, again, another guy, did exactly what we asked of him. We said, hey, if this Borna Choric is to be taken seriously the way he was in 2017, 2018, he needs to bounce back from this match against Tsitsipas and beat a Jordan Thompson who doesn't have a definitive weapon to hurt him with. George did exactly that. 756163 considering he played 10 sets in his previous two matches. This was a really impressive performance and this is a quarterfinal Jamie I am all about. Yeah, so I'll start with George real quick because I was a little bit concerned in that first set. Um, and, and that's no disrespect to Jordan Thompson, but that was a very tight first set. And Jordan Thompson was making sure, I mean, look, he was putting a lot of points. He was putting on the racket of George and said, hey, beat me. Um, and Borna George was missing a lot of opportunities in that first set. Toward the end of it, obviously, he got things buttoned up. And then from there, rode the momentum, played some good tennis to win uh, the second and third set, 6-1, 6-3. So 
Borna Chorich looking good and, and at this point should be feeling good about his matchup in the quarters. Unfortunately, a guy who's also feeling really good right now, you know, coming off of a 2-2-1 two, two and one win to get into the quarters, um, Alex Vera. And so mm-hmm. you, you, you nailed it, right? This is going to be one that we're all going to be watching, a next-gen battle. Um, how heavy of a favorite do you see Alex Vera as? So it's interesting because Chorch is 3-1 to one head-to-head in his career against Zverev. And Zverev only has losing records against two next-gen guys, uh, Chorch and Tsitsipas. And for some of that, you can kind of understand it. Zverev wants to hit backhand, so does Borna Chorich. You know, both guys a little bit... Uh, big with their forehand backswings and this is just a little thing but you know these guys prime my generation so this is what I was all you know this is the stories I was following Alex Virev was the guy for a lot of these young players Shapovalov FAA Tsitsipas you know whatever it may be Zverev was the guy they followed he was the golden boy he was the number one junior in the world yada 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 to Alex Virev that's Borna Chorich because Borna Chorich in the juniors 2011-2012 was just dynamite. And he was the first guy to break through of that group, right? He was the guy who we saw beat Federer, beat Nadal, beat, I believe, Murray. Um, you know, Chorich then 2017 U.S. Open, I remember that match so clearly. Zverev was the seed. He really should have won this match, but Chorich knocked him out 3-6, 7-5, 7-6, 7-6. And it was one of those matches where Zverev just sort of crumbled a little bit mentally. And again, physically, Zverev, Chorch can do a lot of similar things on the court. They're going to track down the extra ball. They both want to move forward, but quietly, they're a little bit more comfortable when they're six feet behind the baseline. And yet, you know, this is not 2018 anymore. Alex Zverev is 6'6". He's probably 190 now, the way he's filled out his frame, and that serve is a weapon. I just think, I don't know what Chorch does to hurt Zverev in this match. I mean, it's similar in both ways. I think it's going to be a really physical match, but I just think Zverev's got the bigger weapons. I think he's playing better between the two. I think physically his body's probably a little bit less worn down. I lean Zverev. Yeah, so to Did me— Did that answer your I, question, I, by the way? Yeah, I mean, very. <laughs> to you, he's a favorite. Um, yeah. And for me, the most important, most important part of this match will come down to the Zverev serve. Um, I, I've seen this from Chorch. All the great things you want to say about Chorch, a lot of times he just gets loose in service games, um, and he gives some points away. And so if Zverev can capitalize on those while already being so solid on his own serve and using that first serve in particular as a weapon, I think he's going to be good to go in this match. Um, I, you know, look, we've seen Zverev have some of his lesser performances at a, you know, at a slam, and so if he comes out and doesn't play his best tennis, it's not going to be the most surprising thing in the world, but um, if he serves really well, I think he's going to beat George, and I think I, I would guess a four-set win. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really good match and one that we will all look forward to on day nine. But before we get to day nine, we have to get through day eight and, of course, second half of the round of 16 slated to be played today. You know, hopefully it provides us maybe not the same level of drama. I don't know if I can handle another day of eight podcasts, which I think was the final tally last night. But, you know, I could take some more good tennis, and I think that's what we're going to see. Let's start on the women's draw because, you know, there are some exceptional matches of 
of course, uh, the the highlight match, the one that's going to kick off our day, Serena Sakari time uh, round two in New York. Sakari knocks her out of the Western Southern Open. First day match for Serena, I believe, in this U.S. Open. Uh, you've also got Mertens versus Kennan, which we've talked about. Those are two contenders, folks, not just to make the final, to win this title. Azarenka Mukova, that's a really fun matchup. Cornet Parankova, also fun. Jamie, your thoughts on the women's matches, the ones you're going to be watching most closely? Yeah, I mean, I think we all need to watch Sakari and Serena to see. You know, I'd be surprised um, if Sakari knocks her out in back-to-back tournaments. Um, that's just not something you see people do to Serena Williams. So I'd be very surprised if that one happens, but going to be a good match for sure. Um, really excited to see how Sophia Kin holds up because you and I both talked about how difficult her draw was um, and she's answered every question thus far so can she answer possibly the biggest one in Mertens um, we'll see I mean I think that's going to be a very interesting match we talked about it a little bit yesterday um, I think we were off the pot I mean you and I have been on and off so much so I don't even know what was on and what was <laughs> off the record at this point but you know we talked about how that's going to be a tricky matchup honestly for both of them how there's going to be some weird and broken points how the rhythm is going to be really thrown off um, going to be a really an interesting dynamic to say the least. I think Kennan can win it, but Mertens poses a huge challenge to her. Um, and then obviously got to be watching Azarenka because as you know, she's been the person I want to follow the most throughout the women's side of this draw. Um, so really excited to see her level and hopefully she can you know stand up to another challenge in the 20 seed Mukaba. Yeah, no, it's going to be a really fun match there. I mean, look, I'm all in on Ken and Mertens. I legit. I mean, I think both of those players are playing so well. I think those are two of maybe the four players left in the draw who legitimately can win this title. Um, so that one, I mean, I'm all in on that. I think it's going to be a long match too. Serena Sakari. I, to beat to beat Serena Williams twice in two weeks, I don't know if any player's ever done it. I probably should have looked up that stat beforehand, but I'm sure you're going to hear it during the ESPN broadcast, so just check then. Um, and, you know, their stats department, I suppose, has a little bit more money uh, than we do here at Cracked Rackets. But, yeah, that's a really fun one. I mean, yeah, even Cornet Parankova. I could argue Cornet's the best player Parankova's played so far between Vekic Muguruza. Um, I just think Cornet's probably playing a little bit better than those two right now. So I think that one's going to be really fun as well. And, you know, again, we see here, yeah, the two and three seeds are alive, but we talked about parity uh, more likely than not. You know, I guess Serena and Kennedy could win, but we're going to see, you know, five plus players outside the top 10 seeds uh, in these quarterfinals. And that is what we expected. So again, validating is the word. All right, let's flip gears. Men's side, your thought, Jamie? Yeah, listen, I mean, there are so many good matches, right? I mean, you've got FAA and team, Dimenauer and Pospisil just took the court. Um, you've got the big forehand battle in Rublev, Berrettini. Both have looked so good and not letting their opponents breathe at all. And then, of course, TFO and Medvedev. For me, if I'm focusing on one, it's probably FAA and team. Um, there's a couple reasons. I think there are still, for me, some questions around Dominic team. I mean, I think a lot of them got answered in his four-set win over Marin Cilic. Um, but for me, now he's gone to, you know, throughout the draw, everyone's looking to him, right? He's not part of this next-gen crop, but he's still part of the crop that is a little bit younger, has yet to win a Grand Slam. He's been to Grand Slam finals before. And now he's in a position where he's being looked at as potentially the favorite. So he has a huge challenge and probably a little bit more weight um, added to you know what he was already carrying. That, when coupled with the fact that FAA has just looked lights out since the beginning of this U.S. Open, 
that's going to be a really, really dynamic matchup. And both of them are just going to be bashing forehands. Um, so I, I really don't know what to expect in that one. If I had to put money on it, I would say a, a four-set win for Dominic Team. But regardless, I'm going to be entertained start to finish. No, it's a really good day. I guess here's the stat I would have for you when you're watching this day of matches. As of right now, 10 next-gen guys have at least one slam quarterfinal appearance to their name. That list, Berrettini, Medvedev, Zverev, Chung, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Tiapo, Shapovalov, Hatchinov, Chorich. Let's pour one out for Chung, Jamie, because obviously that's something we would love to see a resurgence from Hyun Chung. But look, Demon Hour, FAA, have the chance to make it 12 uh, with their wins today. Obviously, Rublev, Berrettini, probably the best match that received the least amount of hype of any match of this tournament. It's I'm that excited for it. I think it's just both guys playing so well, so, so well. It's a rematch, obviously, from last year, but this has been the next-gen tournament, you know, we've been waiting for. I keep saying it, but I just, I, I know, again, some of it's a product of the draw and the fact that there are certain guys not not in this tournament, but that's not their fault. And the thing that's most encouraging, again, is that they continue to put up the results, continue to win the matches they should. Now it's time. These aren't matches they should win. This is the cherry on top. Let's see what they're made of. And so, yeah, I agree with you. It's going to be a really fun day eight. And hopefully you all will be following along with all of the action. If you miss any of the action, rest assured, Jamie and I will be back here tomorrow morning to break down all of the tennis, talk about any new storylines or controversies should they emerge. And what we've learned through these three weeks in New York is they probably will emerge. So be sure to check back with us tomorrow. Be sure if you want to hear our picks for the day to listen to our GSP Ace of the Day segments brought to you by our friends at DraftKings. If you want to hear again more about Novak Djokovic, go check out the video Jamie and I did on our YouTube channel. Subscribe there as well as to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews and Inside Out Podcasts. Again, if you need those more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're at Cracked Rackets. You want to DM me. I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out, making all of this possible. Also, again, uh, you know, a huge shout out to all of you supporters, our Patreon supporters in particular. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do any of this stuff without the support we you give us. And again, it's even beyond the financial support, just knowing we have a group that backs us so passionately, it means the world to us. So seriously, thank you so much. Also, thank you to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Go to MidwestSports.com, use the promo code CR15, go to aerobar.com, use the promo code CRACKED15, uh, let them know we sent you, and again, the, uh, the way uh, we are so grateful for their support, the least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Jamie, any final thoughts before we wrap this bad boy up? We need to go watch some Dimenauer and Pospisil at 1-2 in the first. I'm excited to see what happens. All right, let's rock and roll from here. Well, then with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host James Fulston McDonald, our super producers Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Crack Records and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.